0: Podcast Making Sense of Science, the show that features interviews with leading experts in health and science about the latest developments and the big ethical questions. I'm your summer host, Emily Mullen, editor of Leaps.org, and today we're talking all about kids and the Delta variant. I'm honored that my guest today is Dr. Natasha Bergert, a pediatrician at Pediatric Associates of South Overland Park, Kansas, and a national spokesperson. For the American Academy of Pediatrics. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Bergert. Thank you, Emily. So we are seeing a surge in coronavirus cases across the nation right now, in large part due to the highly transmissible Delta variant, which is really scary, but particularly scary, of course, for parents with children who are not yet eligible for the vaccine. So how Is the Delta variant affecting kids right now? The Delta
1: variant is different than the original coronavirus that we were dealing with last fall. So I think most parents are worried about going back to school, getting back to activities, getting into clubs and sports and all those things with this new variant around. The, I should say that this is not necessarily surprising to us. We expected more variants to arise from coronavirus because life is going to find a way. It's going to comp- the virus is going to adapt and change in order to be able to thrive and replicate in a population that does not have protection against it. And unfortunately, right now, the largest population that does not have protection against any coronaviruses Our kids. We have a large population and growing population of adults and individuals that are 12 plus that are getting vaccinated that are slowing that spread. But unfortunately for our youngest kids who haven't had the opportunity to have that protection, Delta is really thriving within those communities because that's a place that it can, that it can replicate and grow. So Certainly in my practice, we've been very busy these last few weeks. We have tested hundreds of children for coronavirus. Many, many, many are positive, probably just as high, if not higher, a percentage of positivity in our office than we did at the peak of January last year. So yeah, that's making us all pretty nervous because this is also our back to school week this week and next week in our community And we're not quite sure what's going to happen when we start having susceptible children in classrooms uh, and together and starting their sports and that kind of stuff. So I think all pediatricians kind of share this
0: worry of the unknown. And hospitalizations are rising among children right now as well, correct? That is correct. Hospitalizations are
1: rising in our community and in other places around the country, and we have to remember too that that medicine is still a people helping people business and although a hospital may have for example a hospital bed if you don't have the people around it to support that patient that hospital bed is useless to everyone in the community so it still comes down to keeping our health providers healthcare providers safe keeping morale up keeping them safe to be able to perform their job Um, and that's another problem that we've been seeing in addition to a physical bed shortage we have a staffing shortage to to help the people in many communities around the country and so that's complicating matters in a while our rates and need of hospital level care for many of these patients is climbing
0: In the early months of the pandemic, it seemed like kids were getting infected less and also getting less severe disease. How has that been changing lately? And is the Delta variant actually more dangerous for kids?
1: That's a great question. And I think we really don't know the answer quite yet. Delta, we have to remember, is relatively new and science takes a little bit of time. My observation is that kids are coming into my office more symptomatic than I saw them earlier in the pandemic. Most commonly, the kids' symptoms that I'm seeing are sore throat, headache, fever, cough, and runny nose. For my younger kids, like infants and daycare, the COVID-19 has looked like the stomach flu. It's looked like vomiting and diarrhea. So that's the other challenge, the practical challenge that we have is COVID-19 in kids looks really different. There's not a consistent pattern that we can see with a lot of these symptoms. So we're watching closely, closely for that. I don't think that Delta in itself is more uh, dangerous to children. It's just infecting a lot more of them. So our denominator of number of infected kids is just a lot higher. And when we get a lot more infections within a community, we're going to see more significant disease. We're going to see more hospitalizations just because the number of infected people is greater. The kids are requiring hydration, oxygen support. But we have had some kids go to the ICU and require very sophisticated life support in order to get through this illness.
0: How long is the infection lasting in children on average? That's a great question because
1: regardless, when they're positive, they're at home for 10 days. So we're seeing them um, usually when they are day two to three of illness, that's when they're feeling the worst. They're usually recovering in two to three days after that. But again, they're still in isolation for those full 10 days. So I would say on average, I've seen kids
0: symptomatically not feeling well for about a week. So what do we know about long COVID in children? Of course, we're seeing a large number of adults with symptoms that linger well after the initial infection, but are children at risk for long-lasting symptoms as well? Yes, they are.
1: And... There is still a lot about COVID-19 that we don't know, specifically this uh, phenomenon of long COVID. I have seen it in patients. A lot of times, especially in kids, they have a very mild illness or maybe even an asymptomatic illness. Maybe a parent or a sibling was infected, so we assume they were exposed. And they're coming in with um, weight changes. They're coming in with prolonged fatigue Uh, intractable headaches. Uh, Some kids, a significant change in their mental health status. Um, So it's challenging because there's very little... We're still learning so much in the adult population about long COVID. And kids are, by definition, always kind of behind in that research, especially during that initial part of the crisis when the kids thankfully weren't involved. I think we're going to learn now that we're getting more infected children We will see more long COVID and hopefully learn how to take care of these kids uh, as we press forward.
0: So where are kids most likely to get COVID? What are parents coming to you and reporting? You know, what types of settings or places should parents maybe be more cautious about or be aware that, hey, this might be a high-risk situation for my child? Ever
1: since the pandemic started... Kids were getting infected from unvaccinated adults. So that's primary, and that is the first place that kids are going to get it if they are around unvaccinated care providers. And that's why it's imperative that all adults over the age of 12 who are especially around children, whether that be working in a daycare, working in a school, going to school, having younger siblings at home, we need to protect all of the older people around these young kids. We have have seen daycare outbreaks with Delta. We have seen uh, summer camp outbreaks with Delta. We've seen sports team outbreaks with Delta that have been much larger and much quicker than we saw in the pandemic. All of these situations typically are when you have a mix or a larger percentage of unvaccinated children and adults and environments in which the adults and children are not masked. So we know that masking works. We know that masking keeps kids safe. And a vaccinated kid wearing a mask should feel very, very good about the protection that they have. And if they're going to be around younger children who don't have the opportunity to get vaccinated, wearing that mask is going to help them out too.
0: What about transmission between or among You know, uh, an unvaccinated child to another unvaccinated child. How risky is that type of situation?
1: That's becoming more risky with Delta. Typically, we didn't see that. For example, in the beginning of the pandemic, we would see an unvaccinated care daycare provider give it to maybe one child in the daycare. But we didn't see that child to child transmission. Delta is... Different in which we are seeing ill children affect infect ill children in the cohorts being around them again when they are unmasked. So that's why we've seen so many in sports teams, uh, camps, and daycares is because typically these are unmasked situations.
0: I think a lot of parents right now are anxiously awaiting the FDA to make vaccines available for young children. Kids make up, um, or kids under 12 rather, make up about 50 million Americans and currently none of them qualify for the vaccine, which if we're talking about herd immunity, obviously is a huge barrier to reaching that threshold. So, What are the best ways that parents and even the rest of us um, who are maybe not parents can protect kids from getting COVID right now?
1: We have to remember that, um, you know, kids are not second class citizens. We are not going to end this pandemic until the children are protected, until the children are vaccinated. That's critical for us to not have them be harboring the virus, not have them become ill and not. Um, harbor variants. Um, So the best thing that we can do as adults is to be adults and to accept inconvenience, accept where we are in our state of the world, uh, choose to get vaccinated. And if we don't get vaccinated, to wear a mask and to test ourselves to make sure that we're not infectious if we're going to be around young children.
0: So again, another vaccine question, why has the FDA not recommended the vaccines yet for children under 12. What kind of data are federal health officials looking for before giving the green light on vaccinating this group?
1: The investigators are looking at a couple different things. We have to remember that kids are not just little adults. They have very fresh, um, very sensitive, very highly reactive immune systems because they see so many viruses and infections in their young lives, especially at daycares and schools and that kind of stuff. They're constantly getting bombarded with these antigens. And so their immune systems are ready and primed to protect them. So when we're looking at this particular vaccine, what we wanna know is, is the dosage that we give them correct? And is the timing between the first dose and the second dose going to be correct? Based on the maturity of their immune system. The maturity of an immune system has nothing to do with weight and size. It has to do with age. And so we continue to look at this group, the younger groups, more closely, because I would suspect the dosing or the timing may be different in some way than doing adult uh, dosage and adult timing for this vaccine. So that's the primary piece that they're investigating. I suspect, based on what we know about these particular types of vaccines, that of course we want to make sure that we're not getting significant safety signals. I know that the FDA and ACIP and other governing bodies are looking very closely at cardiac side effects from this uh, exposure to this vaccine. They're very mindful of it. They're doing larger sample sizes to ensure that these rare side effects are not going to be significant for the children that we vaccinate, in addition to ensuring that they are getting the least amount of medication that they need in order to get an effective uh, immune response and effective, durable, long lasting immune protection against COVID-19.
0: At this point, are we seeing any negative side effects in these clinical trials for children under 12?
1: I have not had the privilege of seeing any data. I also have not heard of
0: any significant safety signals. What about for children and teens 12 and older? I know there have been some concerns about safety, but um, what is is the data showing at this point and and how common are negative side effects? Right, so
1: initially we were concerned about cardiac side effects specifically with the mRNA vaccines that's the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines we had looked at myocarditis and pericarditis which is heart inflammation specifically and not only our 12 plusers but into the young adult population so that that extended into people into their 30s. So what originally we found was a small uptick in the number of, uh, individuals that were getting myo or pericarditis after getting the vaccine within a, within a week of getting one of the mRNA vaccines. So this was extensively studied and the FDA did add an addendum to the EUA saying that, that myocarditis or pericarditis is a small risk for people over the age of 12, um, After receiving this vaccine, I will tell you that many of the children that are contracting COVID-19 are having cardiac complications, arrhythmias, high blood pressure. You can get myocarditis and pericarditis from the disease itself. So from a pediatrician's perspective, the risk of getting one of those cardiac side effects from the vaccine to me personally is much lower Than getting a cardiac side effect from contracting COVID-19. I'm still strongly recommending the vaccine for my parents and patients, despite that addition of that warning. And I have also vaccinated my own 14-year-old without any hesitation, despite hearing that message.
0: What are parents' biggest concerns about the vaccine? You know, what when they come to you and ask uh, about the vaccines and, and whether you recommend the vaccine for their kids, what are they most worried about? I think
1: one of the most common questions I get is the concern about long-term side effects after being vaccinated. And I want to be very clear that the term long-term side effects is one that has been created from the vaccine-hesitant and anti-vaccine community. We watch for side effects during clinical testing for any vaccine, for any medication, for any biologic for eight weeks after the administration of the medication. Side effects are going to happen well within that window, usually within two weeks. We watch for eight weeks just to be the most cautious. There is nothing that is going to happen if you receive a vaccine that that six, from, six months from now, a year from now, 10 years from now, all of a sudden, something's going to happen that we didn't know about because you got injected. That's biologically implausible, especially with the mRNA vaccines, because the vaccine itself doesn't stay, it's so fragile, like it doesn't even stay active in your body for very long. We speculate even two to three days, and it's completely eliminated from your body. So the thought of having these long-term side effects or something many, many years from now that we don't know about um, is something that I want to reassure parents is not something pediatricians are worried about. It's not something science or scientists are worried about because if we can get through that eight weeks after administration without a safety signal, we have confidence that long-term side effects do not exist.
0: Let's talk about masking policies as schools are reopening. Masking policies are really all over the board right now. (laughs) We're seeing some school districts, you know, even though local spread is rampant, not requiring masks in Florida. For instance, the governor banned uh, mask mandates in schools and some school districts are trying to defy that mandate and are getting pushback from the State Board of Education. How can we best limit transmission in the classroom?
1: The way to limit transmission in the classroom is to keep Delta out. And so if you do not have a 100% vaccinated student body and staff body, and in addition to that, are not routinely testing, and by routinely, I mean every five to seven days, routinely testing your population of vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals to keep the virus out, then your best... And cheapest and easiest way to limit transmission within your schools is with universal masking. Period. Full stop. the 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 quote unquote debate about masking is has nothing to do with the kids, and that's what pediatricians are so fired up about. Is this is about adults who have an agenda and have put a flag in the ground and are not are not willing to. Maybe make some inconvenient choices for a brief period of time in order to keep children safe. Children will be safe through vaccination and masking. Adults are safe through vaccination and masking. So if you are not testing your student body, then masks must be used to keep people safe. Otherwise, kids are not going to be able to stay in school.
0: Now, I wanted to ask you about a slightly different approach that some school districts are taking For instance, the Archdiocese of Baltimore is not setting a universal policy about masking in its Catholic schools for this year. Instead, they're leaving it up to parents and the jurisdictions where the schools are based, and if transmission rates are low to moderate, they say uh, no masking is fine, but if if transmission rates are higher, they're saying, you know, maybe you should go ahead and Mask, so they're kind of uh, leaving it up to the the transmission rates and the the COVID case numbers in uh, these schools and their districts. What do you think of this approach? I think that approach
1: may work for smaller communities, ones that are testing frequently and that are keeping good contact tracing within that community in order to really know where the infection is. So for some smaller private Catholic schools that may work, for larger public schools and larger school communities, it contact tracing and monitoring these tests and making sure all these kids are tested appropriately just gets really challenging. Now, that being said, what's happening in my community is not what's happening in yours, Emily, and it's not what's happening in Vermont. It's not what's happening in California, right? So I appreciate the nuance here that is allowing smaller communities that have better control and high vaccination rates to be able to have more lenient mass policies because that's following the science. But generally speaking, I, I will I will speak, I should say, I should speak for myself here in Kansas City. We have a high transmission rate. We have a high number of kids that are positive. And so whatever that number is uh, that you decide is time to put on the mask is probably about two weeks behind where you're actually going to be. And so you're constantly going to be taking a position of catch up instead of a position of control. So In larger districts where we're not testing or don't have the availability to do that contact tracing, that approach is not going to be as effective.
0: Now, what are you to do if you're the parent of a child in a school district that's not requiring masking? You send your kid to school with a mask and their friends aren't wearing masks. And, you know, your kid might not want to wear a mask because he comes home and says, Mom, Dad, None of my friends are wearing masks. What are you to do in that situation? I think we have to remember that we there, there are parts of this
1: pandemic, many, many parts of this pandemic that are not under our control. Okay, I think that for most families who value masking, their kids have been masking for this last year and asking them to wear a mask, quite honestly, is not that big of a deal, Um There are areas of the country in which there may be some more peer pressure or more bullying. In my opinion, what's most important is for kids to be comfortable, happy, and learn well at school. And so if masking is becoming an issue that is um, causing bullying, aggression, uh, distracting type behaviors, then it may be in your child's best interest to drop the mask depending on what your community rates are. But I would say that when community rates are high, it's been my experience that even that kids are not giving each other too much grief. Like kids have been doing this for a long time now. They're not. It doesn't bother them. I've got kids that are very comfortable wearing them. Kids are telling me in the office I would rather wear one because I know it keeps me safe. I mean, these kids are have been living through this pandemic with us and I would I would I, get, I think we don't give them the level of respect that they deserve for making that decision when they're around their peer groups, especially when they have been listening and learning to every word that adults have said over this last year.
0: So of course, we are waiting for the FDA to make this decision on uh, whether children under 12 uh, will be able to get the vaccine soon. And that decision could come you know, in the next few weeks. Um, of course, there's also still a lot of vaccine hesitancy. What would you say to parents who might be hesitant or cautious or still have questions about whether a vaccine is uh, appropriate for their, their uh, young child? Um, what would you say to, to a parent who still has concerns That that having concerns
1: is normal. It's It's a natural protection that we have for our kids that we want to make sure that we are not going to do anything to them that is going to cause them greater harm. And any pediatrician, any healthcare provider totally gets that. We are here to help navigate and translate science and the evidence based on your family needs and your family risk factors. So if you have any questions, please, please, please like reach out to your pediatricians and your trusted healthcare providers. I will say that never in the history of our planet have we ever had so many individuals getting a vaccine at the same time to the level of billions of vaccines that have been distributed. We are living in a time when We are living through an experiment that is also confirming the safety and the efficacy of these vaccines as we speak. So we're going to look closely at that trial data. We want to do the best that we can with our kids, but we also have a year of information, almost a year of information on these vaccines and billions of doses given in a a larger population to consider as well. Kids need to have this protection, we need to do it safely. So we'll look at the data together and I hope that we can hear from them soon.
0: In many states, kids need parental permission if they are under 18 to get a a vaccine or really any kind of medical treatment. There are some exceptions, but in in most places in the United States, that is the case. We are seeing some teenagers who really, really wanna get the vaccine who are um, defying their parents and and going to get the vaccine, even though their parents might be the ones who are hesitant? What do you? How do you suggest families who have uh, differences in opinions about vaccination deal with this issue? Yeah, that's interesting because that that's under the assumption
1: that you have control complete control of another person. And especially for our adolescents, any parent knows that that's not true. Now I live in Kansas. So the state is 16 in Kansas, and we certainly have had some 16 and 17 year olds that I've taken care of that have just gone to the health department and getting their vaccine, even though their parents are not vaccinated and didn't recommend it. I think kids are maybe don't have a set of biases that our adult brains do. And are able to translate many things differently than us uh, when you give them the information that they need to make the decision. I don't think there's any health provider on the planet who ethically is going to be encouraging children to take vaccines or to get vaccines without their parents' approval. Uh, We have conversations with these teenagers and their families to give them the facts and Ultimately, it's up for the up to that teenager to decide. Um, a lot of the teenagers who have been vaccinated, when their parents didn't necessarily approve, had very good reasons, such as they were dating someone with a high risk condition, they needed the vaccine to go to camp, they wanted a vaccine in order to go visit a relative or to fly safely. So these kids are thinking through this based on their own, uh, in their own microclimate their own connections that they have their own values and putting that within the science that they're learning the vast majority of the kids that i have seen who have gotten vaccinated and their parents are not have had the conversation with their parents but it has not caused a significant strife between them um with open communication. And if there's, if they have provided a good reason to the family and why they should, um, going to nursing school, volunteering, those were a couple of other big ones too. So, um, again, it's, it's something that our kids as growing adults will be able to do independently. And as much as we as parents want to guide those particular choices, ultimately the kids have, every right to vaccinate themselves on their own if they wish to.
0: Now, are you seeing the opposite? What about vaccine hesitancy among teens and children even under 12? What are maybe the root causes of, of hesitancy in those groups? My patient population in generally
1: is highly vaccinated. So, of course, people have questions, but they're, they're, getting, they're getting their vaccines. I would say my teenagers who have not have already had COVID. And so it's educating them that even though that they've already been sick and already had the illness, that Delta is evading some of that natural protection and they still should get the vaccine anyway. And it's not that they're necessarily averse to the vaccine. It's just they don't think they need it because they've already been sick. And I understand that knowledge level, especially if they don't have someone in their life that's necessarily educating them and Encouraging them to get vaccinated. So we work together, kind of talk about that stuff. I think it's very, very, very powerful, especially for our young adult populations, that the colleges are mandating the vaccine. Um, a lot of these young adults need a push uh, to get that, uh, especially if they feel like they've had the illness or they feel like it's not going to affect them very much. Um, but as far as has classic hesitancy, in the classic sense of the word, I'm not seeing that in my teen populations. They want this vaccine. They want to get, they know that they want to, they want to get their life as normal as possible too. And they want to be part of the solution.
0: As schools open for this school year, what do you think the fall holds for the Delta variant? Are we going to see school closures again, for instance, and if those are inevitable, what can we do to prevent that from happening?
1: I wish I knew I think that's the million dollar question, right um, I think there will be some districts that have a really hard time keeping the doors open. I have think that I think there will be some districts that can breeze through Delta without a blink and those are the ones that did really well last, during the earlier parts of the pandemic, we've, we've learned a lot on how to keep our kids safe and those that keep the mitigation factors in place. I think that we are, are even in a better situation than we were last fall because we have so many teachers and staff that are now vaccinated. So I think it's more than just is Delta going to surge through and, um, uh, you know, make all these schools close. It's also like, we don't know what happens when you see Delta and flu together. We don't know what happens when you see coronavirus and RSV together. We've started to see a few of these cases. And so now it's not just about, is Delta going to sweep through? It's okay if Delta and something else sweeps through or, you know, what's going to happen when other virus, typical cold and winter viruses kind of start to intermix within within Delta already surging. So um, I really, really, really hope that kids stay in school. I really hope that there don't have to be closures. Um, Kids need to be back so desperately for their academic progress, their mental health, their physical health. Um, I really hope the adults around them will make the best decisions that they can in order to make that happen.
0: Any final thoughts or, or parting thoughts for parents as they are navigating this incredibly difficult time with sending their kids back to school in the face of uh, the, the Delta variant and, and lots of fears about their kids potentially getting sick.
1: Yeah, it's, it's hard. Um, this is hard. And, but I will say a couple of things. And one is that the, even though Delta is scary, we know so much more about the virus this year than we did last fall. We know how to keep ourselves safe. We know how to keep ourselves protected. We know our high risk situations that we can choose to avoid if we want to. We know more about the virus. We know more about the symptoms. We know more about the treatments. We know more about the vaccine. We are in a better situation this fall, even with Delta than we were last fall. So that's the first thing that we have to have to be confident with. And the second thing is we have to, we have, to have faith that this will end. And it it may not be this school year, and it may not be next school year. We still might be masking next year. I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news, but like this, this may be something that we live with for two or three years, just based on our historical situation with different pandemics. And but but it will end, and we have to continue to be moving forward with our kids and our own lives. Because we don't want to look back and just see these two, three, four years as just a black hole in our in our lives as a person and our lives as a family. So we have to remember the basics. We got to get good sleep. We got to have family meals. We got to get around the table. We've got to help our kids get those restorative hours of sleep. Make sure we're offering our kids nutritious food, keeping a positive attitude making decisions the best that we can with the information that we know at the moment. If things get scary, we, scary or worrisome, we can always pull back. But until then, we've got to keep marching forward. We'll do the best that we can. This will end and,
0: um, and the kids are going to be okay. I think so too. Uh, thank you so much for a great discussion, Dr. Berger. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you like this show, follow making sense of science to hear new episodes coming once a month. If you want to give us feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Get in touch through our website, leaps.org, and you can follow us on Instagram at making sense of science. Stay safe and we'll catch you next time.